Hello and welcome back to Doctor Informed. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 10. This is a podcast brought to you by the BMJ and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed is primarily for those doctors working in hospitals, taking you beyond medical knowledge and talking about all those things that you need to know to be a good doctor but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, a general surgical registrar in the northeast of England and host of this podcast, Doctor Informed. Now, I promise that in this half of the season, I had some exciting and gritty topics coming up. And the next in that lineup is today's episode. On the pod today, we have the dynamic duo, feminist icons and saviours of so many female medics who all collectively sighed, thank you, we finally feel seen, when you started the campaign Surviving in Scrubs. Chelsea Jewett and Becky Cox, it is an absolute delight, honour and the living out of a pipe dream of mine to have you with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, well, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. It's the first time we've been called gritty. Um, so that's brilliant. Um, so yeah, so I'm Dr. Becky Cox. I'm one of the co-founders of Surviving in Scrubs. I am a GP by training, but I work predominantly in gynaecology um, with an interest in pelvic pain and trauma um, against women. Um, so we founded the campaign um, for a number of different reasons. One of my sole reasons for being involved with this was because I have first-hand experience the sexism and misogyny that goes on in healthcare. Um, It was something that I experienced throughout medical school and working as a junior doctor and I got to the stage where I'd had enough. (laughs) (laughs) So you decided you were going to fix it. And Chelsea, please introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit more about yourself and the campaign. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, I'm really glad this is a podcast because I'm bright red after that introduction. (laughs) Thank you so much. No, it's lovely. Um, uh, So, uh, yeah, so I'm Chelsea Dewar. I'm a uh, registrar in emergency medicine um, working up in the Merseyside region. Um, Though admittedly at the minute I'm on maternity leave, so I'm not working in the same capacity. Um, So in terms of the Surviving in Scrubs campaign, um, I'd already been doing some work regarding sexism in medicine um, alongside the BMA. Um, I helped to publish a a survey published in 2021 um, and looked into, you know, how prevalent sexism in medicine was. um, And some of the statistics from that were... They weren't surprising, but they were quite hard hitting. Um, so 91% of women um, had experienced sexism within the, the two years prior to that survey coming out. And then there was loads of hubbub around that. And then nothing, nothing was really happening. You know, there was there was lots of other discussions going on um, regarding other protected characteristics, etc. So I wanted to do something um in order to kind of drive this conversation forwards and that's when Becky got in contact with me and you know that's when we decided to create uh, surviving in scrubs and here we the are the rest is history <laughs> yeah. as they say yeah. um yeah and i think that that's something that i really really want to cover today is that idea of here's something shocking where do we go with it next? So uh, yeah, thank you for your introduction. Uh, And finally, I am so thrilled to be joined by Bron Biddle, who works within the ambulance sector, because I think talking about this as a doctor problem and not within the wider context of other healthcare professionals, nor indeed society, would be doing this topic a disservice. Thank you for having me. I'm Bron, founder of Ambulance Voices, a new collaboration with Surviving in Scrubs, I am currently working within the ambulance sector and I'm part of a team working on a national approach to addressing themes of misogyny and sexual harassment across the sector. This work is referenced in the recent National Guardian Office Speak Up review of ambulance trusts in England. I joined the ambulance service from a health board environment a few years ago and had a real culture shock experiencing sexual harassment very soon after starting. I heard Becky and Chelsea talking on another podcast and reached out to them and it went from there. I care deeply about empowering and amplifying voices across the NHS to bring about positive change for everyone. Thank you all. Yeah, thank you all so much for joining me. Um, Before we start, obviously, some of the things that we're going to be talking about are going to be difficult to hear, um, which is the primary purpose I think of talking about them today. But I do want to give the normal trigger warning for our listeners. who may have been affected by by themes that we cover today. 
Um, I first heard about Surviving in Scrubs on the morning of the 11th of July, 2022, um, when my dad looked up from reading The Guardian and said, oh, look at this, Clara. This is what you keep saying about work. Um, And since then, I've followed the movement closely. And I was really thrilled when I persuaded my producer, the BMJ, to have you guys on. um, Because I think dragging these issues out into the open is, is how we start to combat them. You've mentioned briefly how you got into this, but how did um, you, Chelsea and Becky, create this impetus for the campaign to take off like it did? Or was it just purely that it spoke to the experience of so many women who were working in healthcare? Yeah, when we were thinking about how to to run the campaign and what we should be doing, I think the first thing that we spoke about together was the power of a of a story and what that can mean to individuals when they read them. And we felt that there needed to be a an anonymous place where survivors could share their stories of what had happened. So they've hopefully felt safe in doing so, but where that they could express what had happened to them, where there was no fear for their career, no fear for any sort of repercussions as a result. Um, and we we hoped that that would offer a place where these survivors could come together and we also hoped that it would provide evidence in the form of testimonies that would then speak to the powers that be and so we set up the website specifically for that aim we hadn't designed a website before we didn't really know what we were doing beyond just trying to piece this thing together Um, but essentially we just set it up as almost like a blog where people could put their stories they come through to us we read them check that they were completely anonymous and post them Um, and Within the first few weeks, we we popped up on social media. We were getting some stories sort of trickling through. And then we had an email from a journalist at the Times who said, seen your website. Um, I've also seen the letter that you openly wrote to the GMC, um, which was pretty ballsy of us for our first our first um, sort of piece of action, as it were. Um, we got together at Chelsea's house and sat down at the table and said, why don't we just do this? Because um, we'd heard that uh, the GMC were updating good medical practice at the time. Um, when you look at the current iteration of good medical practice, it doesn't have any specifics in it about sexism, about misogyny. It's very much just a be be nice to your colleagues and patients. Um, and they were asking for uh, sort of opinions on what the, the next version of it should be like. So we wrote an open letter saying, actually, you should explicitly say that these behaviours are wrong, um, in part because that sends out a message that there is no tolerance of these behaviours but also um, we know that the GMC do use those guidelines in their version of a prosecution when it comes to tribunal and investigation. Um, So so we got picked up by the Times journalist following that letter um, and then that's when you became aware of us, that's when it exploded and we didn't know what day of the week it was, what on earth was going on and somehow we were in every single newspaper and magazine and online and all sorts so and presumably trying to you know do your full-time jobs as clinicians at the same time as well so no pressure yeah 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 (laughs) that's exactly what we were doing we were literally taking it in turns on shifts to keep an eye of what was happening on the um on the emails and trying to sort of sneak off to do a quick media interview in between sort of doing other bits of work it was um, a bit of a learning experience I think I was on night shifts that week that as well I think I was on nights you were. yeah <laughs> and I had a job interview it, oh, oh yeah. my goodness <laughs> um but it wasn't a disaster it was incredibly successful which was great yeah Um, Yeah. it got the public's attention which is what we wanted it to do Chelsea did you expect this to have gained as much traction as it did I didn't expect it to gain as much traction as quickly as it did um Mm. because that was we launched our website I think in in June so like three three or four weeks later all of a sudden we had loads of stories coming in we had loads of media attention um meet like radio interviews aren't things that isn't something that that we've done before um I I was on the I was on the tv news as well (laughs) Um, (laughs) and it it was just it was just crazy but you know from that it's it's been great because it's really launched our campaign and from it you know we've got loads of of connections and a a fair bit of influence now when we're talking to people like the GMC um Royal Colleges um, NHS England etc so so it's been fantastic and I suppose 
2021 that was the well that spring summer that was the time of the murder of Sarah Everard so in terms of it being of its time and of its moment um I suspect that probably played somewhat of a part in in the traction that it gained um you've mentioned the GMC and you've mentioned your letter to the GMC um can you can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that and what has happened since you wrote that letter uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we wrote an open letter to the GMC um, stating that we wanted an explicit clause within good medical practice saying that colleagues shouldn't have sexist attitudes or undertake sexist behaviours or sexually harass or sexually assault their colleagues. It's a, sta- a sad state of affairs that that has to be explicitly put within a code of conduct for for doctors that is that that is sad but unfortunately it's the world in which we live in um so we wrote this we put it onto onto social media mainly twitter it got quite a lot of attention as we've explained and then um the GMC got in touch with us um, and we had an initial meeting. So that must have been in the summer of last year. So so July, August, maybe, um, where we had a meeting. We sat down with um, a few of the, of the people that work in kind of like their EDI and policy department. And they were explaining a lot about good medical practice um, and how the process is going, etc., and then we've not really heard much from them since. We have got a meeting lined up, um, I think, next week, actually, with them. Um, but we were told that there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of levels of, of kind of administration they've got to go through until something is put into this document. But but that's sort of where we're up to at the minute. We're, st- we're still pushing and we're still very vocal about what we want in there and why we want it in there. Um, but we've just got to kind of wait and see what's what they're going to do from their side really do you think in i mean this is in the work that all of you do do you think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what is sexism what sexism is not what is misogyny what misogyny is not you know do you think that it's that people just don't realize what they're doing or do you think that they do absolutely realise um, and, you know, there is intent behind this and that's what we should be challenging or, or sort of a combination of the two? I think one of the the phrases that gets um, sort of spoken quite a lot around that is unconscious bias. And I think the question is, how unconscious is that bias in reality? Um, I think all of us should be careful about what we say, how we should treat other people and you know, no, nothing is completely unconscious. There is always a level of you've chosen to say that thing for a reason. Um, and I think, yes, there may be some unawareness about, of about how harmful things that people say or do can be. But equally, we we know that we should treat others with respect. We know that we should treat women with respect. It's in the media constantly about what is happening across other organisations, for example, the Met Police. So I don't think you can ever really say that, oh, I wasn't 100% aware of what I was saying. Um, And there needs to be some accountability or quite a significant amount of accountability for behaviours and what is said. And do you think that translates to other sort of areas of healthcare, Bron? Yeah, I do. There's this um, real focus within the NHS on compassionate leadership and um, we've seen lots of workforce policy changes more in keeping with being more proactive rather than reactive in in any type of, um, I guess, dignity at work or grievance type of context. But, but but clearly it's it's not enough and we have professional registrations we have codes of conduct but but these issues are are, are still happening so i think a personal opinion um is that othering happens a lot so we distance ourselves from from a comment you might hear because well i'd never take it that far when actually that you know and that's where the bystanders comes into this which i'm sure we'll come on to a, a bit later as as a you know potential intervention for for this but it's that that distancing that not looking inwards like becky's just mentioned at 
Um, you know, I include myself with that in, in terms of things that we say and, and hear that have just become so normal. Mm, mm, I think that normalizing thing is one of the themes that, you know, cuts across many of these podcast episodes we talk about any situation where a bad thing has happened it always seems to come as a result of this normalization of of behavior um obviously we've talked about you know if you're in a minority group do you think that that's I mean I'm a surgical trainee there's been lots about this within surgical trainees recently the recent times article which I'll link in the show notes uh, Becky Fisher and Simon Fleming's piece in in the bulletin that sort of triggered this surgical Me Too movement. Baroness Kennedy's report. Um, and I'll also uh, link the uh, interview that I did with Baroness Kennedy about that. And it's almost, you can almost see why that othering happens in, not that it's ever excusable, but you can see why it happens in in those subspecialties or specialties where there are a lot less women. But this is not just happening in surgery. I mean, Chelsea, I think when we first had our chat, um, opening chat about this, you said, look, surgery, I've got loads of airtime recently, but this is cutting across all healthcare professions, all specialties. So, uh, you know, obviously it's not enough just to say it's happening in places where women are in a minority. It's happening everywhere. Where do you think we start by unpacking why it's happening? As it stands within healthcare, women outnumber men massively in terms of staffing numbers etc um i'm gonna i'm gonna mainly talk about medicine because that's you know where i within what i work and what i know best but the structures of medical training for example are they're 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 archaic they're they're really behind the times they're not flexible enough they don't take into consideration um the the demands that that women have on their time not all women um but you know we do know that women that women as a, as a subgroup have more um for want of a better phrase domestic responsibilities or or other kind of um caring responsibilities whether that be for children or family members etc um flexible training for anyone man woman is a is a good thing um and we need to be be bringing that in we need to not only be making our hours more flexible but um the demands of training um more flexible we're talking about being competency based now um how competency based are we really there seems to still be these checklists that need to be ticked off etc um so there's lots to do with kind of like the institutional side of things but then there is also leadership um we need to see more female representation in leadership roles and you know there's just so 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 many things uh, that need to be changed the culture itself um needs to we need to start calling it out and this goes back to you talking about normalization of behaviors um a lot of what people would say are minor issues or or not really worth complaining about or raising actually if you start if we start talking about these um these behaviors these attitudes when they are minor they won't escalate and escalate and escalate to the point where people are being harassed and assaulted at work um so there needs to be a culture of openness there needs to be a culture of of somewhere that these things can be reported um there needs to be accountability um, which is proportionate to to what the behaviour is. I'm not saying that everyone should be struck off after they've they've called a fully grown woman girl. Like mm. I, I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying like we need to start having these conversations and and it needs to be an open an open discussion from from both sides because as soon as there isn't that open dialogue, there's confrontation and nothing gets resolved. Um, so that's, you know, that's what we are doing. We are constantly talking about this. Um, you can't get us off our soapboxes <laughs> um, because that's what we need to do. We just need to keep talking and talking and talking and then hopefully sorting out the, the institutional issues and reporting, etc. Yeah, and I think one of the things when I uh, spoke to Baroness Kennedy, you know, talked about rape culture pyramid and this idea that, you know, rape and murder are not entry level offences you know nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks yeah do you know what I'm gonna do you know it starts somewhere and it starts with creating a culture where that's acceptable and I'm, I'm interested that you came on to you know you mentioned there 
uh, calling a fully grown woman girl. Now, you know, if we reported that all the time, we'd never stop reporting things. I think that's, you know, part of the issue. You know, apart from talking about it and addressing it, do you think there's any any ways that we can sort of, I suppose, do a bit of a rebrand, have this zero tolerance policy for the way that language is used to create that environment? Is is there any practical way that we can we can put that into practice in the NHS? So ambulance services, as you will probably know, are really broad, but just for your listeners to understand, we employ a wide range of different job roles with actually more support staff than we do paramedics. So are quite a unique cog in the NHS wheel. We've got really strong links with the military. We've been wearing the crown badge, which is a mark of royal approval since 1985 and uphold a lot of traditions that are steeped in history. So some would say our culture is more in keeping with other uniformed services like the police, the fire, than healthcare. So this huge sense of pride, myself included, and belonging like a family is, is positive. But the other side to that is it's it's quite patriarchal. Um, we've come a long way since the 70s when Nellie Singleton battled with male colleagues to become the first emergency ambulance woman in Yorkshire. But and, and in 2023, we have more females entering the paramedic profession than males. But I've realised over the last few years, parts of our culture really haven't changed at all. Um, otherwise, I wouldn't be sitting with you here today. So I think it is important to it is important to look back and, and understand the context and what are we what are we holding on to? Um, so yeah, just wanted to share that insight. I think it's it's helpful to to understand that. And do you think some of those patriarchal those patriarchal values, those traditional values, that idea of being you know a hero? I know you've mentioned that before. Um, do you think that affects the language that's used and therefore the culture that's sort of fostered within that environment? Absolutely. And I think if we, you know, we think about how we've traditionally valued rank and and still do, there is always going to be a need in emergency services for for command and control in times of crisis. Um, But when that starts to leak into culture, it can be quite um, suffocating for, for diversity to thrive. And it almost lays down all of these things combined, like an invisible foundation of who fits in and who doesn't. Um, and I think something I've really noticed is, you know, it is almost that survival kind of way of I need to fit in here. And that's what I found when I experienced what I did. Um, and I'm sure some of your listeners can relate to this, that I changed my behaviour, which ultimately I was blaming myself. So trying to be more confident um, you know trying to fit in trying to be accepted and um, ultimately not being myself so when we talk about you know a lack of diversity we know is a big risk factor for sexual harassment to happen in a workplace well you know coming back to your kind of other question that's where we probably need to start you know addressing more and looking at I could talk all day (laughs) about this no that's that's really helpful and we'll be back right after our message from our sponsor okay back to the show Uh, becky do you think there's anything that we could be doing about language that we use on a day-to-day basis and you know whether i'm always really reticent to talk about or we just need a guideline or we just need more bureaucracy because we've already got far too much but you know is there anything that we could be doing to build this in either from an education um from an education point of view or or from another point of view that would would really cut this off from the beginning yeah so i think with looking at language and you know language leads to behavior essentially um we need to take quite a broad uh view on it and it's thinking about how we work with medical students how we work with juniors senior doctors as well and thinking about that in the context of wider healthcare so um one of the things that we've are very much aware of is the language that medical students get taught and what they come in to medicine with in the first place and you know the students are young when they come in they've they've just come out of college or sick form um and unfortunately they are exposed to a, a whole variety of different cultural norms um that come in through that way and a lot of those can be quite misogynistic 
Unfortunately, what we tend to think happens is that when they get into medical school, they're then exposed to the hierarchy of medicine. They they hear the banter and the language that gets used culturally on the wards and in the team um, construct, which then reinforces the use of that language, which reinforces the bottom of that period that lead pyramid that leads up to the higher level of sexual assault. Um, and so we need to be looking at how we use our language to ensure that our language is fair and that it's not harmful and that it's safe. Um, and that is going to mean a huge cultural shift in healthcare. And that needs to come from top down. It needs to come from bottom up with our students. It needs to come from universities, from hospitals. NHS organisations need to instil a culture of we do not tolerate this language. You cannot use this language. This is how we speak to each other. And one of the things that we're trying to work on is engaging the Royal Colleges with that as well, because these are the organisations that uh, give accreditation to doctors as they go through their training. And so ensuring that they're not just focusing on meeting the next qualification, getting through the system. Now, we need to ensure that they're continuing to be taught to be fair doctors who treat people the way that they should be treated. Um, and we also need to see that coming down as well from the GMC in the way that they use their language from the other healthcare regulators as well, and essentially the government too. So it's a huge, huge cultural change that needs to happen. And language is just the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to put an example to you um, just so that we can, you know, try and keep this really practical. Let's say that um, I am a junior consultant or uh, perhaps a senior registrar and one of my male colleagues on the ward round um, says something in front of a group of F1s. Um, and I'm always, you know, I've been very like impressed that there has been a bit of a generational shift. Um, I know that you're saying that, you know, people are exposed to hierarchy. But I do think that there is this, you know, Gen Z do seem to be a bit better at questioning things than, than certainly I was. Um, let's say they say, oh, hang on. Uh, I don't think that that comment was appropriate or I don't think that that language use was appropriate. And, you know, your male colleague is, says, sort of says, oh, well, they're a bit prissy. They're a bit oversensitive. You know, Gen Z snowflake. We've, we've all heard these comments before. What do you think the best way of addressing that behaviour in that moment is as as the bystander? Because I think we need to obviously be very clear, as you have been, that this is not on the the person that receives that comment. I obviously now do a lot of converse, have a lot of conversations around these things, and I'm I'm quite confident and comfortable with saying, no, actually, what you said there wasn't 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 okay because of X, Y, and Z. Um, it's Again, not being confrontational, but um, highlighting what was wrong, why it was wrong, and maybe what could be done in future. Um, and again, being open to you know your your opinion being questioned by them, etc. Bringing forward this dialogue and this conversation, because again, if you go in quite adversarially, then then there's going to be friction, confrontation, and nothing's going to get resolved. Whereas actually, even if you just chip a little, chip away a little bit about their preconceived ideas, next time they might do something similar, but not as bad. And then someone else might chip away, might chip away, might chip away until they, you know, they eventually come around to your way of thinking, or they might just, something may automatically just click for them. Um, so that, that's kind of how I, I would... Um, approach that situation um if it was more of a if it was more of, of a, an emotionally charged kind of interaction where someone's very ups someone's been very upset etc then I'd, I'd probably deal with that slightly differently maybe taking someone aside first of all checking that the person who's who's been victimized in that situation is okay what they would want me to do for them because some people might might just want to leave it and that's up to them because it's their experience, it's their feelings, it's 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 what they're going through. If they if they just want to leave it there, that's fine. You as the bystander leave it there in that case because you know they, they may change their mind at a later date and in that case you can support them. But at the end of the day you have to ensure that the 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 victim is being looked after here. Um but if they want you to say something, then you can go away and talk to the perpetrator of that behavior again saying, "Come on, that wasn't on X Y and Z." Is, mm. is what I would say. 
It, it, it sounds like it's it's very much about moving it instead of saying it's their fault for having that feeling because they were oversensitive or you know whatever it is they are that feeling is completely valid yeah let's address why we don't accept that and you know about instead of just trying to move the mountain all in one go about moving it you know rock by rock Bron what were you gonna jump in and say there I was gonna say sometimes saying nothing is quite powerful because people hear themselves so silence can be um, it's a very non-adversarial way of not not engaging um with with whatever has been said but like Chelsea said it really depends on the situation and you do become more confident I think sadly the more you notice these things the more you get used to to challenging them but I've, I've actually said to somebody quite recently what what you're really saying is if I can't be sexist then it's not going to be any fun around here anymore <laughs> So <laughs> it's true, isn't it? And, yeah. And when you unpick it more, it's it's like, well, is banter replacing vulnerability? And, mm. and certainly within the ambulance sector, where many colleagues, well, across healthcare, do a difficult job. Colleagues bond through exposure to trauma, sadly, and humour is used as a way of coping. We we know that. So that can be quite a helpful and non-aggressive way to to just reframe it for someone, but you can always go back and reflect and sp- speak to somebody about it, um, but completely depends on the, the situation. But I think power imbalances, which I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to, for students in particular, it's very, very difficult, especially if a comment like that that makes someone feel uncomfortable comes from a senior who is potentially, you know, signing them off or Mm. you know that that power imbalance can be Mm. very very harmful so I've got a friend actually who's a comedian and um, he always says look you can be a really good comedian but the first rule of being a comedian is you don't punch down you know you don't you don't make people the little people or the people that are in um, you know a minority group that's just off the table and you know that should be the accepted norm for comedians but also for people who are trying to have a laugh at work I suppose as well um I'm interested that you said you've brought up power imbalances so I don't want to sort of walk past that um without picking that up I we have talked a lot already about um sort of inter-health professional issues with sexism misogyny sexual harassment, sexual assault. What we haven't talked about is that relationship between patients and clinicians. Um, And obviously the investigation that has recently come out between the BMJ and the Guardian has been massive in exposing the fact that this is not just inter, um, you know, inter healthcare professionals. This is across the board, across everybody, patient on patient. Um, is that something that, uh, Chelsea, Becky, that you've had experience of when you've been looking at the stories that have been coming through on Surviving in Scrubs? Um, yes, it is. Um, some of our stories featured on the website do actually contain um, sort of episodes of abuse that have come from patients. Um, one of some of the ones that sort of stand out are particularly when health professionals are going into patients' homes. Um, They're often lone working and in quite a vulnerable position where they're going into a home that perhaps they haven't been to before um, and they're providing care for a patient who then takes advantage of the situation and assaults the health professional. Um, We've also got um, a few stories in which... uh, a doctor during their shift has been had something inappropriate said to them by a patient. They've then gone on to try to report that to their senior um, and the senior has shot them down and said, you just have to get on and deal with it. That's just part of the job. And I think, you know, that sadly is one of the comments that we hear quite a lot. That you've just got to be quiet and put up with it and carry on. That's often what you hear from women. And I, I think internalised misogyny is perhaps the most difficult to to identify and, and address because you know it's probably years and years and years of, of conditioning and that's that that I think is so so difficult to to identify and challenge but sorry to interrupt no I, I think that that's you know it's a really good point isn't it and I'm, I'm fascinated what you said Becky about you know when you go into patients homes because I naively thought that comments are one thing 
sexual assault um, from a patient to a clinician, in my mind, I thought would be more rare because the power imbalance tends to lie in favour of the clinician, whether they're male or female. But I suppose that 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 power imbalance, and this does all come back to power, um, is shifted when you're in somebody's home or if, you know, it depends who's more vulnerable, I suppose, in that position. I think it it does, but also I think some some you know, especially some male patients will regardless of what your job role is, actually they're the ones who will call you love and darling. They're the ones who will ask you, Oh, you know, have you got kids? What are you doing later? Um, they might come in and ask, you know, say, Oh, I've got this this thing on my penis, can you check it? And you feel uncomfortable because it was said in a very strange way. Um and so I I don't think it's necessarily that doctors or um, like the clinician always has the power. And yes, that's very much amplified when you go into someone's house. But there's certainly been uh, consultations that I've done as a GP when I've definitely felt on the back foot with a male patient and felt like I was in quite a vulnerable position, even in the surgery where I was working. Mm. Is there is there guidance around this? I mean, this idea a bit, you know, the customer is always right is what they say in sort of, you know, other patient facing, uh, sorry, customer facing roles. And I do think we sort of apply that to patients like, oh, well, the patient's done something, but let's excuse it because they're sick or, you know, they've come to the hospital and we absolutely shouldn't. Um, is there guidance around it? Is there is there um, advice about what you should do in that situation? So the, um, the information that's out there is... Uh very uh what's the word scanty i would say um so or scarce actually that's probably a better word Mm. um so policy and um what you do in these kind of situations is incredibly variable some hospitals some trusts will have documentation about what to do if a patient is sexually inappropriate to you others will have absolutely nothing and not have a clue what to do um and you know we see so many you know we're all familiar with those posters that are in behind reception in the A&E department where it's got we are here to treat you don't harm us um and but it doesn't say on the don't sexually assault us um you know it's not something that you really talk about um and i don't think it's recognized in the context of you know being of the same magnitude as physical violence and i think that's something that we need to be thinking about and how we address that and how our our clinicians do they actually feel safe when they're at work mm. Chelsea you work in in ED you know is this if you know a junior came to you and said this has happened to me or, or if a patient did it directly to you would you challenge them should you challenge them oh that's such a difficult question um sorry I, no no <laughs> I keep getting all the hard ones no. <laughs> sorry um targeting you it's it's happened to me before and I have challenged it. It's happened to me before and I haven't challenged it. Um, it's, it, again, it's very dependent on the situation. I, I totally agree with what Becky said, saying that the sexual um, assault or inappropriate sexual behaviour is not treated as seriously as um, as physical physical violence, even though it can be physical and can feel violent at times unfortunately um it also goes back to what what Bron was saying about you know people saying oh you know particularly women just saying well th- this this happens it's just part of part of it and and trying to crack on it's it's it shouldn't happen um when i have felt comfortable enough to to raise my issues it's when I know that I'm working with colleagues that will take me seriously and that sentence in itself is really sad yeah Um, I can see you wincing just saying it yeah (laughs) but I think we probably have all felt like that yeah um I've raised it directly with patients before um I won't go into details, but a, a patient made very inappropriate comments when I was about to catheterize him. Um, and I was like, I don't, I am not going to catheterize you now. I don't feel comfortable with this because X, Y, and Z walked out and got someone else to do it, got a male colleague who felt comfortable enough to do it, to, to do it. So not in any way, you know, changing his, his treatment plan, etc. But then from, from that, 
I've I've then explained what happened to to a colleague to to my senior who's on the floor because that you know that's the responsibility of the consultant and they've laughed it off and and it's like that that's that's not okay I felt you know I was alone uh well I wasn't I was about to have a chaperone um for the catheter but I was in the room explaining the procedure on my own and he made me feel very uncomfortable and a little bit scared if I'm honest and that should be taken seriously by a consultant who is on who's on the shop floor um but then I've had other experiences not too dissimilar from that where I've gone to admittedly a female consultant and she's been great and gone in and said this is unacceptable if you do this again then you know we'll have to get you sent to a different department there was um it wasn't as serious an issue um, requiring admission or anything like that um so so there's it's difficult with patients because particularly when working in, in emergency services when you know you're needed right there and then you can't turn someone away most of the time so you have to put your foot down and explain that this is unacceptable but at the same time you have no real for want of a better phrase you have no real bargaining power because you still have to treat them you still and and you know we do have to treat them we have to treat them exactly the same as someone who isn't sexually harassing us um but it's but it's hard and it's tricky and that's where you need strong leadership and you need that top-down realization that there are issues here and that as the leader in that department or whatever department you work in that it is your responsibility to look after your staff Mm. and I think you know that's obviously incredibly powerful when somebody goes in and says this isn't okay you feel vindicated you feel legitimized and you would probably then you know it's that idea of role modeling next time if that happens and you're the consultant you're going to behave differently um, I think one of the really sad things about all the all these reports that have come out and, you know, the very existence of surviving in scrubs having to exist is that this is such a systemic problem. Obviously, we've talked about getting, um, you know, the backing of bureaucracy, so the GMC, changing in language. Do you think that this is just such a wide societal issue that we really need to change society? Or do you think that this is this is a healthcare problem? It's a societal problem. <laughs> we are just a microcosm, really, aren't we? Yeah, the NHS. yeah. I mean the NHS is huge, but it, yeah. Yeah. It, I think it's I think the NHS because it is such a, a huge employer, um, you know, different sectors within that, all over the country, um, you know rich parts of the country, poor parts of the country, etc. It's a real um it's a real litmus test of what's going out on in society as a whole, I think, in terms of culture, attitudes, etc. But it also is it is um it is an organization. There is um the power to um you know put policy in regarding culture, etc. And it is an organization that touches everyone within our society at some point in their life so has the potential to influence um influence behaviors and again if there's there are these interactions between patients and clinicians and there's this chipping away of these attitudes and 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 behaviors you know hopefully that's that's a way of kind of making oh sound a bit airy fairy but making the world a better place <laughs> making society kind of catch up a bit as well um just you know it is a, it is it can be a drop in the ocean but it's better than nothing mm. well, we did an episode on climate change and um, one of the guests on there said something that I, I think about a lot which is you know she felt like this tiny cog and she thought I'm in this huge employer what on earth can I do but then she's sort of re branded that and sort and sort of thought well I am part of this huge employer you know if I can change what the NHS does it's you know one of the biggest employers in Europe that is going to to change things as uh, you know as a whole um I know that surviving in scrubs as a campaign is not there to sort of advise and tell people what to do if they experience these problems um but I'm sure most women listening will sadly have experienced some form of sexism sexual harassment or you know 
God forbid, sexual assault on that scale. Um, Obviously, perpetrators use a lot of different techniques. Gaslighting, we've talked about normalising, that power imbalance. And you mentioned litmus test, Chelsea. Is there a sort of a litmus test that you can apply if you experience this behaviour that makes you think, yeah, no, I should be taking this seriously or I do need to, to, to question this? Or, you know, I think it's very easy, isn't it, to feel like, oh, I'm overreacting or I'm being a bit oversensitive. Is, is there something that you, a question you can ask yourself that, that allows you to sort of, I suppose, question the behaviour you've received? I usually, because I'm I'm quite hot-headed and I do have quite strong opinions about these issues. So I usually, the first thing I say is, am I overreacting? And then I immediately go, no, you're not overreacting. Because if this happened to your best friend, you'd be fuming. So <laughs> so I often just think, like, if my, if one of my best friends or, or any, any colleague or anyone was telling me that this had happened to them, removing any kind of emotional language out out of out of the out of the event how would that make me feel and it it seems a bit silly that I can't just do that for myself as an individual but as soon as you take out your own emotions and you think actually in black and white this patient said these words to this clinician doing this procedure then actually yeah if 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 taking away the emotion still makes you angry then actually yeah that's that's not right that's not right it makes you angry or sad or, or or makes you feel something then that's that at that point would be actually no something needs to be done about that that needs to either be highlighted to someone or, or reported formally again depending on on how severe or how serious the issue is mm. Ron I can see you nodding along do you um is that is that a sort of a test that you you use on yourself as well I honestly haven't thought about this before. I'm sure we all have our own kind of individual ways of, of coping and dealing with these things, um, especially when, like we are, you know, we are immersed in this. <laughs> you, it's, it's really difficult to switch off from it, um, but it's important that you find a way to do that. I think just talk, talking to, to your friends, to someone you trust is uh, quite often opens up an unsurprising echo chamber of, of me too, of yes, I've, you know, I've experienced that. I feel the same, but it's, but it is difficult and clearly a conversation that needs to get louder. Um, but within the NHS, there are different avenues you can pursue. So not necessarily your, your manager, but safe, we have safeguarding teams quite often, violence and aggression teams, HR advice. So, lots of mental health support available but navigating that can be confusing and perhaps something you know we can we can look at doing collaboratively to to help with signposting affected affected people turning it on its head we've we've talked about what it feels like to be victim or a bystander um i really hope that there are loads of men listening to this. <laughs> really hope there are loads of men listening to this. Um, and I'm sure they'll be thinking, okay, I, I'm a man at work and um, I'm listening to this podcast because I want to change my behaviour um, or ensure that I you know, don't behave in a way that is sexist or constitutes sexual harassment. Um, do you think there are any basic rules, standards, things that, you know, as a man, you should just take off the table when you are at work and obviously we've talked about locker room banter but you know do you think there's anything else really that um, men can do to sort of be allies in this situation? I think there's lots of things that men can do to be allies and I think one of the most important things is speaking to other men about behaviour and what, what is acceptable and what isn't so if you hear one of your male colleagues saying something that's inappropriate speaking to them about their behaviour if there's sort of jokes bantery sort of things being said sort of calling them out checking in about where that language is coming from and I guess behaving as the role model that you would want to be so 
you know, setting that example so that the the juniors and other staff members in the hospital see how well and how nicely you behave so that you behave in that way is really, really important. But also thinking, you know, actually, would I want my mother, my partner, my daughter to be spoken to in this way? And would I be angry if I'd heard them being spoken to like that? And if that's the answer, then you need to be careful about what you're saying and what you're hearing other people saying Mm, mm. and I think you know you've sort of alluded there to it's it's not just what is said directly to the person it's also what is said full stop you know there are lots of people often in rooms or places um within all different aspects of healthcare and it doesn't you don't need to be the target of what is being said it's just I suppose that sets the standard it sets the culture doesn't it I mean, I I could continue talking to you all day, but I appreciate that um, we are coming towards the end of this recording. But I think, you know, we can get really bogged down in the weeds of of how rubbish the situation is. And, you know, all of the reports that come out can make us feel like we will never be able to change things. I suppose looking forward, what one thing would you want to see done differently to move this forward and to stop these reports coming out? I'm going to start with Bron. Yeah, <laughs> for me. I'm going to victimise you it, this time. <laughs> it's it's address, address your own reaction, um, regardless of, of, your, of your gender, to this conversation. So well done for everyone listening to this episode. But I think if you find yourself rolling your eyes, oh, here they go again. Um, you know, we're also bored of talking about this, but it, it's a problem and it keeps happening. So yeah. I think for me, that is so important, going back to the othering, the distancing. If you want to up your noticing, you know, some of these issues are literally in the walls of our workplaces. So for me, that is the starting point and I think would make a huge difference of stop othering and reflect yourself on um, perhaps what you're not noticing and I think feelings of shame can come up for people I've I've heard from colleagues who've shared this this with me very briefly that they do feel ashamed that perhaps they've they've not intervened in you know perhaps previous non-recent situations or also have because of fear of social rejection and wanting to fit in joined in um themselves so for me that would be the biggest takeaway from this podcast is address your own reaction and if you you find yourself rolling your eyes and a bit impatient uncomfortable with the conversation that's probably the starting point for 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 learning a bit more about these issues and speak to speak to people affected Mm. they're the experts (laughs) absolutely i mean that's such an excellent point i've um just reread Catelyn Moran recently and she talks about this is not about men waking up in the morning and hating women this is really about men are historically the winners women are historically you know the losers inverted commas in society and people people like to keep those power balances they like to keep that going and I think they feel threatened and you know that that shame thing comes into that so much so yeah excellent excellent point um Becky what do you think I think from what we said a little bit earlier, one of the things that I would that would be really, really great is if we could see reform from the GMC about this issue. Um, I mean, as doctors, we'd love to see reform from the GMC on many issues. Um, I really hope they're listening. One of them. <laughs> yes, I hope they're listening. Um, but it would be it would be great to see that. Um, they're thinking very carefully about how their investigations are done, how they triage their cases effectively and how they take into account misogyny and sexism in the actual tribunal process. Because I think from looking at previous cases, it sort of feels like they're letting down a lot of women. Um, And there's been numerous cases where we're seeing tribunal outcomes that do not reflect the magnitude of what has happened. And it would be great to see some introspection and reflection about what they're doing and how they can reform to better serve victims. Just as a point for my own clarification when it comes to the GMC, can you report somebody for misogyny, sexism or sexual harassment to the GMC or is it a police matter? 
So it's both. Um, and this is, a again, a, a bit of a difficult subject. So, yes, obviously, there's a police thing. If this has broken the law, um, then that absolutely you can report to the police. With the GMC, again, you can report these behaviours to the GMC, but there's quite a few hoops that you have to jump to for any progress to happen. So one of the commonest places that this gets let down is when you report it, they triage your your complaint that you've raised and quite often they don't investigate. And that's where there seems to be a lot of issues. Um, you also see that, you know, as you go through the process, it's it's really, really hard for a, a victim or a survivor to get through that process. It's very lengthy. Um, there's a lot of bureaucracy that's in the way. And in particular, there is something called the five-year rule. That means if you were sexually harassed, sexually assaulted six years ago, they may not investigate, even if it was a very, very serious complaint. Yeah, okay. Um, well, <laughs> last but not least, Chelsea D, what's your takeaway point? Um, it seems disheartening that all these reports are coming out, but I think the fact that these reports are happening is great because it proves that this problem that isn't new has been around for decades, if not longer, is actually getting spoken about and we're, we're having evidence that this is this is going on and things can't, unfortunately, can't change and there's no evidence to, that that things need to change. So I think that's that's great. In terms of the one thing I'd, I'd like to, to, to fix or, or change immediately, it'd be it'd be about reporting the these behaviours, actually, deductions, etc. And it's tricky, but if I had a magic wand, <laughs> um, making some form of, of reporting um, system that was unified across the whole of healthcare, whether you work within a GP surgery or trust or the ambulance service, for example, that is um, easy to navigate for um, for victims, is well supported for the victims because reliving these traumatic experiences just adds on to the trauma and makes you know it adds additional barriers to to reporting but then there being an accountability um from what from what happens with with those reports and we are a very 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 long way away from that at the moment and that'd be something that i think if we could fix would make a huge huge difference I think, you know, you mentioned defining the problem is important. If you have a reporting tool and there are clusters of reports about the same person over and over again, that is a very clear pattern and that is very hard to ignore. You know, that's how Me Too happened. It wasn't one person coming forward. It was a group of of people coming forward. And it is so sad that we're in the situation where, you know, even the way that we talk about... um, rape it's always alleged rape or alleged assault it's never you know you don't talk about alleged burglaries do you (laughs) so I mean we the language that we use is so far but you know it is a shame that we still have to be in a position where groups of women have to come through but it has to get to that point but I think that you know you are you're spot on with that um Lastly, and obviously we have talked about surviving in scrubs, so that will be in the show notes. And um, that is an excellent resource for people who are victims or survivors of this sort of behaviour. Is there any other resources that people should be aware of if they are in this situation? Um, So if you're in this situation, um, we are actually, we're redeveloping a lot of the information on our websites. There will be a new website launching soon that has a lot more resources for survivors um, and also for healthcare organisations. Outside of that, a lot of the resources that are available are more specific to the general public, um, but certainly organisations like Rape Crisis, the Survivors Network, the Survivors Trust have got incredible resources on their websites. They also, um, quite a lot of them, offer helplines and support. Um, obviously, the the BMA, if you're a member or not even if you're a member, you can still call them. Again, they, they can offer help and advice. Um, and so can your local um, sexual assault referral centres um, and support centres. They can also offer quite a lot of support. Thank you. Um, and thank you all so much for joining us on this episode. Um, thank you for listening to Doctor Informed. Doctor Informed. 
sadly that's all we have time for today we are always really keen to hear from our listeners um, for ideas for future discussions reflections on the topics we've discussed today or in the past please get in touch if you like our show i'd love it if you could support us by leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts or share with the people you know if you tell your friends about it it helps them find us If you would like to hear other episodes, please subscribe to Doctor Informed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and you will be notified of when our latest episode is up. Until then, goodbye from us and thank you again, Becky, Chelsea and Bronze.